So good evening. <laughs> yeah, this is a surprise. <laughs> I saw three people here. <laughs> this is a, 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 amazing. These three people were together exploring the mysteries of the minds for six weeks. And they're here. <laughs> Thank you for coming, all of you, anyway, including those who uh, attended the six weeks retreat. So, I was asked to introduce uh, what I'm going to talk about this weekend. And my topic is about how to work with difficult emotions using mindfulness and loving kindness. And I'm going to talk what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> I don't know how I can avoid to talk what I'm going to talk about, but I'm going to introduce it anyway. <laughs> I think it's going to be very helpful to know who is going to be here tomorrow. <laughs> and then that will help me, so I give this maybe more time to answer questions, if you have questions. So, because it doesn't make sense if I talk about how to deal with emotions today, and then tomorrow you're going to come and you listen to the same thing, but it can't be the same, I can't tell you for sure. Even when I talk about this time, Tomorrow when you come, it's going to be different. <laughs> so, but still the general information is the same. The general information is the same. So let's start uh, introducing this topic. How to work with difficult emotion in a skillful way. The topic is not how to abandon, how to overcome. Because most of the time, people, the first uh, thing that come in people's mind when there's a difficult situation is how can I get rid of it? But sometimes we need to understand things first before even we get rid of them. We need to understand something and get familiar with that experience. And that's the beauty of mindfulness that actually we, 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 we learn how to uh, understand the experience and when it, come ne when it comes next time, then we understand it better. It's like, it, it is like having a guest. Hmm? Uh, Bant is coming to visit you. And then he knocks on the door. He said, no, I'm very busy. Come tomorrow. Every time I knock, you come to... You don't allow me in. So you don't understand whether I want to use email, which food I'm eating, <laughs> whether I need a pillow or not, which mattress I use. You don't understand. So next time I broke the window, I am just want you to use a sense of imagination. I go into your door, <laughs> not steal, but to go inside you. And all of a sudden you find me there. Where did you pass? I passed in the window. You get scared. <laughs> but if you got to know me very well, like John, my friend John, knows me. <laughs> so now when I'm visiting John next time, he knows oh, Bante can stay even on the ground. He can have this mattress. He takes hot water. Like one of you, you. You say, you remember me five years 
go. You say, Bante, you, are, you want hot water. So it's easier. You just brought hot water, isn't it? Because you knew, you understand. So part of the practice actually is always to try to understand something. And then once you have understood it, then you can develop some methods to really uh, overcome. I think my experience about emotions, you know what emotions are. I hope you don't confuse them with feelings. Feelings and emotions is not the same thing. <laughs> feelings, they are well organized in our tradition. There's pleasant feeling, there's uh, neutral feelings, there's difficult feelings, and what we call uh, unpleasant feelings. We can keep on dividing them into ethical and unethical, uh, whether renunciation based on renunciation or not, whether external or internal or past or future and present. So we can get about 108 feelings. Very clearly we can try to divide it. They are very well organized from experience and also from academic study. We can actually know that, okay, this is a pleasant feeling. This is a, a feeling uh, of the present moment. This is a feeling based on renunciation. And we can divide them, but emotions are different. We cannot divide emotions like that. They are disorganized. They come... <laughs> One time you have grief, another time you have joy, another time you have this and anger, then it's just disorganized. And also the arousal time is a little bit very fast compared to feelings. Arousal time, that means one moment like this, you feel so angry, just in a second like this. But really to experience pleasant feeling, it takes time. It takes time, so it has a long time arousal time to, to kick in. But I'm telling you, with a second, within a second, you can, see, you can see somebody who has been laughing and then all of a sudden they are so angry. You know? Very fast, very fast. But feelings take a little bit of time. So we are going to make that distinction very clear. And uh, another thing we are going to uh, talk about, what are things that we... Uh, unconsciously or consciously help us to block these unpleasant, uh, difficult emotions. i give you an example. We finish a uh, our six-weeks retreat at IMS. They drove me to the airport. You know, we finish uh, the retreat, they drove me to the airport. I had to take my lunch in a car around 11. So I arrived at the airport at 12. The car that dropped me there had to go to pick other two teachers, actually three teachers, Beth and Guy Armstrong and uh, Sally. So it left me at the airport. Now, I reached the airport. I punch in my air ticket. My flight is supposed to leave at 3. But when I punched into the, because uh, I, I was rushing and I just punched in, it printed out my, my air ticket. It, the printout came, flight 6.30. I couldn't believe it. 
I said, did I do wrong? Maybe I pressed the wrong pin, you know? I said, let me go to the counter. I went to the counter. I said, because I had already the, the, the online paper, I said, I can't believe this. This is my paper from online ticket. It said that I have to leave at 3.30, uh, like that. And then this is 6.30. Sorry, the flight is canceled. Actually, first they say it's delayed. And I say, delayed? But he didn't change check in the computer. So I say, let me go to somebody who has a computer and check what, what's wrong with this flight. I'm telling you, I went to a lady. She told me, there's bad weather in Newark. The flight is really actually delayed. But we can put you on standby flight, which leaves at 7. He's a monk on the airport. There's no place to stay. <laughs> and the person who dropped me there has gone back home uh, to Massachusetts. Uh, and then I said, wow, am I going to wait from 12 to 7? I couldn't believe it. So there's a block. I start blocking off my emotion of actually fear. Uh, when am I going to go to Newark? And I, so there was that denial that actually flights cannot be cancelled. <laughs> the weather was great, actually. I can't, I can't believe that the weather's Newark is a bad weather. I told the lady, and I know because I'm a meditation teacher, but for some reason I wanted to, uh, to ask, uh, do you think this is a confirmed flight? Are you sure I'm going to get on this flight? Because I knew the repercussion if the flight is cancelled, I'm, not, I'm going to stay in Boston Airport <laughs> and I don't have uh, a way to, uh, there's no temple to stay. And then I told the lady, joking a little bit with a smile, are you sure this flight is going to go to Newark today? She smiled at me. <laughs> I knew, <laughs> she knew that there's some denial element, you know. She said, I, I don't know, she said. I say yes, you're right. We, the flight can change at a time. Anyway, finally my original flight was cancelled altogether. They said we are not flying there. <laughs> Most people were stranded pilots and flight attendants. And they say they, they've been there at 7 a.m. For me, I was there on, at 12, but for them, they said they, they were at 7 a.m. They were there on, at 7 a.m. I sat there and I phoned Guy and Armstrong, the teachers. They said, you've been here all the time? I said, yes, there's nothing to do. So they bought me something to drink. I was thirsty and I drank something. And then all of a sudden they said there's a, a flight. The manager, United Airlines got a, a flight where by all people who missed the flight, they put them on that flight. We are few of us. But for me, it was amazing. My first reaction that the, the flight has been uh, delayed. And, you know, from 12 to 7, that's a lot of time. But as a meditator, I say, I can meditate, that's fine. I can see it and I can call Uganda. And, and I did so, actually. So time went very fast. But why am I telling you this story? I've seen people getting angry at the people on the counter. When the flight are canceled, I have a meeting, I have, I have to go to a meeting. Uh, then my question, this is my question I ask. Do you want to go in bad weather? 
because you have a meeting. <laughs> so this is how denial plays in our mind that we really feel that we can even risk and fly in bad weather so that we can attend our meeting. Only us who want to attend that meeting. We are not even considering other passengers. So finally I got on that flight and I arrived in Newark at around 10, around 10 actually. The pilots apologized on behalf of United Airlines and Mother Nature. <laughs> we like to offer, apologize for uh, delaying this flight. So my, well, I tell this story to tell you exactly that people we live so much in denial that actually we are unable to access what's going on, whether it's a difficult emotion, whether it's fear, anger, or whatever. I think one of the most common problems is more of our defenses we put around ourselves so that we can stay in a comfort zone. Yes, we call them defense mechanisms. Sometimes we can call them defenses when they're conscious. And sometimes we can call the same thing coping mechanism. In fact, mindfulness is one of the coping mechanisms, even loving kindness, so that we can ad address issues. So we are going to explore some of those things, and uh, uh, fixation is one of them. We fixate. Fixation, I was talk talking about this during the retreat, but there was not enough time to talk about all these me defense mechanisms. The most common one is also fixation. We fixate and say, oh, this is how it's going to be. When you have, you're angry and somebody's making you angry, whether it's your friend, you say, wow, this is how it's going to be. This person is, is always going to make me angry all the time. This is a, their nature. This is their personality. Then we fixate and we say, oh, I'm an angry person all the time. So you personalize the emotion. Yeah? Like, you know, we have these days iPhone. That's, that's why actually everywhere we go we have to have our phone because it's I, iPhone. So what do we do? We say I emotions, I emotions. <laughs> so emotion then become, we own them, you know. So we are going to talk about how to really dismantle that idea of owning emotions. So you are one thing and emotion is another. In other words, it's part of the five aggregates, right? It's part of what you call uh, well, feeling uh, belongs to the second aggregate, which is feeling. Emotions belongs to mind state. It's actually rising and passing away all the time. The only thing we want on it and to be ours. Eh? We get patent eh? numbers for the emotions. We get copyrights for them. And then we say, this is a, I'm an angry person. I'm a fearful person. I am this. So it's I emotions. Right? So we are going to explore that in our talk tomorrow, how not to really personalize emotions. So what we want to do is to depersonalize them, to depersonalize them. We are going to watch that. Uh, but I think what I see also the society, the society itself, uh, where we live in a culture, eh? the culture itself teaches us how to navigate around difficult things, around death, around, uh, uh, yes. And uh, you can see in general, that's why, uh, you know, in this world, we have friends, we have strangers, we have enemies, 
Do you know why we have these three categories of people? Friends, enemies, and strangers? It's about how we, <laughs> our defenses. Eh? If somebody is uh, giving us some good, something good, he's our friend. If somebody says something agreeable, he is my friend. Bant is my friend. But if the same people say something we don't agree, eh, which pushes our button, they become enemies. The same people. And then, people we don't know, we call them strangers. That's the old defense mechanism of uh, pushing our things we don't want, reaching out for what we want, and ignoring what we don't know. That's in uh, meditation tradition, we call it greed, hatred, and illusion. So enemies, we hate them. Friends, we love them. We cling on to them. And, uh, and strangers, we ignore them. That's ignorance. So this is, has been used for centuries. Hmm? In biology, we call them freeze, uh, ignore, freeze, or flight or fight. This is very common. So we are going to see those things, but of course this is a short course, I mean, program, but we, we are going to at least to address some of the most common ones, uh, the way how we really uh, get hijacked by emotions because we tend even to live in denial. Mm-hmm. When there's something doesn't work, when something doesn't work, we deny, yeah? we deny these things. I think the extreme denial is even what we put on our graves. You know graveyard? We put RIP. I saw some mechanism there. Rest in peace. No, that should be resting in pieces. Because now we have navigated around and within modern kind of medicine we can embalm people and stay in one piece <laughs> just in case <laughs> there's a non-judgment day coming you know so anyway so I've seen the society a lot and uh, there's a lot of stuff I've seen I was coming in a flight and then they were announcing uh, how to use uh, how to use uh, what you call seat belts and amazed I, I was amazed I thought this was redundant actually but I sat next to an Indian lady who didn't know how to use a seat belt didn't know how to use a seat belt I had to help her <laughs> yes and then she was doing like this and the flight took off and, and she wanted to go to, to, the, to the toilet to the I mean, what's it called? Now, how do you call it? Restroom. Okay, we call it a restroom. Another denial. <laughs> you don't rest there. <laughs> okay. Anyway. So, and then she was told, no, no, sit down. The flight is turbulent. There's going to be a lot of turbulence. The lady denied. She had this kind of self-denial. She said, you know, I have to go. <laughs> Anyway, so she sat down, very restless, you know. And so then they they made this announcement that uh, how they made this announcement this time for using a mask, oxygen mask, they said that in case it's needed. Can you imagine in an airplane, 
You see, the, the flight attendant told us how to use oxygen mask. The way she announced it is that she, she did like this. This is the oxygen mask. Uh, in case it's needed, this is how to put it. it in case it's needed, you haven't told me. I'm a passenger. Tell me when is it going to be needed? <laughs> is it going to be when there's a change in air pressure or when the airplane blows? All that information is left out. And how long am I going to use it? Those things actually last for 15 minutes. Not more than that. I googled because I fly a lot. <laughs> so basically I saw how the society, the society navigates around fear. They don't want to tell you that the, the, the cabin pressure is going to change. They used to tell you actually in the case of cabin pressure use the oxygen mask but now they are no longer telling you. They don't want you to be afraid. Fear. So we have learned how to navigate around fear. We use so many words. So we are going to talk about what we call repression and then denial and then we talk about fixation. There are other defense mechanisms we use but there's not enough time. We'll talk about that. Then we are going to talk about the causes. What are the roots of emotions? Most of people don't know about the roots. As a monk, I grew up, I mean, uh, I was in a monastery and I studied things and experienced stuff, uh, fear, this, but I had not got interest to go into the root. Where does this thing come from? Where is this stuff come from? Most of us, we actually have these emotions and we, uh, we just even, we are interested how to fix it. But where is that coming from? Let's say if you have anger, where does it come from? We need to find out. For me, mm -mm. when fear came, I wanted to find out where it came from. And for me, it was a very interesting area to find out things where they come from. And then later on, I did a bit of research where I found out anger had four causes. Anger itself has four causes. I studied about this in scriptures, and I just hold on to, oh, anger arises because of unwise attention to the theme of irritation. And every time I would give talks, oh, well, you're angry, you're not paying attention to, to anger itself, you're you are doing this and that. So that's already given in the scriptures that the cause of aversion, anger, is paying anyways attention to the theme of irritation. So after finding out that I knew that fact, but I was getting some kind of irritation sometimes, then I said there must be something else. I found out some other causes. One is past behavior. The more you give in eh, whenever there's a situation to be angry, then if you give in, then we say a behavior. Your behavior, past behavior, becomes a cause and condition for anger to arise. In other words, if today you get 10% anger eh, and you react, angry, uh, you're angry, next time it's not going to be 10%. <laughs> it's going to be even stronger, either 25% or 30 
I'm just putting it in a figure, arbitrary figures. So anytime you get angry and you don't take care of it, you, you are preparing, preparing yourself next time to be even more angry and more angry. That's why you need to take care of your stuff. <laughs> you need to take care of your stuff. When you have emotion, take care of it so that next time maybe it's just reducing, reducing. It would be wonderful every time you, your emotions are reducing. Eh? Eh? Maybe 20%, next time 15%, next time 10%. That's where you want to be. You don't want to keep on increasing 20%, 50%, 100%, you know. So we are going to navigate around those things, other causes like uh, even elements actually, and humors. So we can talk about more causes so that you're, you are familiar with the causes. Sometimes people ask me, oh, I have grief. I said, yes, you're right. But where is it coming from? A Buddha talk about how it comes from craving. Craving. Five places in Dimapada talks about where this grief and fear comes. So when you have a lot of fear, so it will be very, very interesting to find out where is that fear is coming from. Let's say fear of loss, fear of separation with your loved ones, fear of death. Try to find out where is it coming from. So some of the major emotions, we are going to track them down. We are really going to track them down tomorrow and find out where these things come from. It's not just random stuff. Really, there's something where they come from. Now, what are we going to talk about? We are going to talk about about 15 ways. If we have time, we are going to talk about 15 tools on how to work with difficult emotions. Hmm? So, Stay tuned. Come on. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I'm, a bit, I'm a bit passionate about this topic myself because I did... Uh, well, I don't want to go beyond time. I want to leave time for question and answer session. When I was in Sri Lanka, I used to teach what we call a diploma in Buddhist, Buddhist counseling psychology. First, I did the course, the diploma, in Buddhist counseling psychology. And then I got so fascinated about emotion because I had just come through emotion difficulties. Most people, you say, oh, you're a monk, you know. Where did you get emotions? Well, <laughs> I was shot at in Uganda. And um, that shaked the whole world. <laughs> it shaked the what? the whole entire world. By the way, that's another thing which is called trauma. That's what it does. It shakes the entire premises where you're standing on. I mean, of course, people don't know that I'm a Buddhist monk. So they did what they had to do. But I survived. And the whole night, I start questioning. I, I think in my life, I've never thought in a single day. I don't think so. I've never thought, thinking about, the, about, I'm telling you my mind working, thinking eh, what really, why it happened, how it happened, and why me, all this. I spent almost the whole night thinking about this event. Not to worry you, it's no longer happening, but it has ever happened in my life, and I had, that sparked my interest, right? about fear and anger and 
forgiveness. Where is this place of forgiveness? Is, what's compassion? What's the role of compassion? Can I really forgive this person who shot at me? I asked myself, now I had to really ask Buddha's teaching. I want to see whether this Buddhist teaching, they're working, including mindfulness. I had to really ask myself. Though I'm a teacher, but I had to ask myself, is this mindfulness going to help me to go through this? Is forgiveness practice going to really help me to really see this person and then forgive him? Not forget only, but really forgive from my heart. I kept on checking myself. Okay, I teach forgiveness, and here I am. I have to really practice it. Is it really going to be fake forgiveness? Fake it until you make it? No. I'm telling you, each of the Buddha's teaching, I really had to check it out for myself. Not through reading books, but for checking myself whenever the thought comes, and I try to be mindful of it. Is it going? Is it rising? Is it staying the same? Is it revisiting me again? When all these emotions came, I had to check out different tools. So that led me to research about emotions, and I found out 100 ways of dealing with emotions. Actually, 101 ways. One was to apply all of them. (laughs) So that goes to say I can spend here almost 10 days talking about this topic. All right, because this is what I started now teaching at a, uh, in Sri Lanka for students who are doing a, who are doing diploma in Buddhist counseling, because it was counseling to six hours a day, I mean on weekend, and uh, I just did it and taught them on all these things for this. So I'm passionate about this topic, and uh, uh, emotions, difficult emotion. Why am I passionate about it? Is because I experienced emotions. Uh, that was 2010. Uh, very difficult emotions, really. When you get so much close to death like this, this much, and you escape, <laughs> I'm telling you, it's really you learn. I, I, I couldn't learn this in Harvard or Stanford University. No. Emotions? And somebody sit in front of me to teach me about emotion? No, I would not understand it. But experiencing it, and this much close to death. I know exactly what it is. So I start researching, getting all the tools I needed to deal with just about an emotion because I went through all of them. So I'm passionate about experiencing emotions. I'm passionate about it through my research, through my teaching in Sri Lanka. So I'm going to share a little bit, I know, from experience, from research, from teaching. Right? So uh, now I want to end uh, my introduction as I told you, I'll give you the tools. I'll tell you some of the, our defense mechanisms, like pushing away things we don't want, and holding on to things that we want, ignoring what we don't know. We are going to do that and give you some of the most difficult emotions, like fear, grief. Uh, what, what's most difficult? Even I'll ask you for, to tell me what's most difficult, and then address it, and then we have Q&A, question and answer session tomorrow. So now I leave it at, at this now. It's 18 past. And I would like you to ask questions, if you have questions. So if you are not coming tomorrow, from my introduction, I think you got something about it. So 
instead of I emotions, drop that I. <laughs> Remove that I. <laughs> and just see emotions as emotion. Not I, my emotion, I emotion. Mm. Okay, questions, please. Bonte. Mm. Um, thanks. So uh, you said something at the beginning which surprised me or confused me maybe when you were talking about feelings versus emotions and the fact that feelings, that is uh, Vedana, mm, Vedana. Uh, actually take longer mm -hmm. to evolve than emotions. Mm. But if we look at it in the, in the context of uh, dependent origination, mm. feelings actually comes before in that chain, mm. right? Feelings comes before emotions. So mm. I always sort of, in terms of the, the notion of something being pleasant or unpleasant, that seems a rather instantaneous response, uh, automatic response almost. Mm. So I'm, I'm, can you clarify what you were really? Uh, what I was uh, uh, talking about is uh, how when to come to experience, experience, when we start, let's say, now we have, let's say, we are in a situation of uh, this is one feeling, okay, this one feeling and another feeling coming. Now, and also this another emotion, another emotion. Hmm? How we come from this emotion to another, it's too fast, too fast. Like uh, now I, I can say, I like your hairdo. Listen. <laughs> and then I say, I don't like you. So from the time where I stopped, uh, the first comment, and now, now when I say I don't like you, how you move from one place to another, from one emotion to another, it such takes your time to arouse a, a very difficult emotion. But if I say, okay, now sit down, in, uh, you see even that process is so fast. If you put the academic stuff, Yes, feelings fa come first, but when it comes to experience, let's see, now you have a pleasant feeling. Hmm? You have now a pleasant feeling. Hmm? So now it takes time. Hmm? It takes time to now to go to another feeling. Hmm? Let's say unpleasant feeling. So there's a time. It's not like chant like this now it is pleasant, and now all of a sudden you have unpleasant feeling. It takes time, eh? the, another feeling to kick, to, to kick in. Like now you have a pleasant feeling. Now you just sit here. Okay, let's say it's pleasant now. It's pleasant. And now when another feeling is coming, another type of feeling to come, hmm, then it will take a, long, a little bit of time so that it changes to another. This is the time. But around the time to say, okay, now anger, no fear. Let's say this line comes like this. A, let's say a line comes like this. Fear will... But when something comes, let's say, a toddler, like this, it's a very pleasant sign to, to look like this. So it, it's slow, takes slow time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the distinction of arousing one feeling to another like right. that. Yeah. So in two, uh, when another motion comes, I told you they're disorganized. Yeah. They're disorganized. So they, it takes... A, Quick time, like, like, let's say, for instance, um, when a car is stationed, eh, different cars, eh, let's say this one is made in Japan, then starting your car, it takes time to accelerate. Like, it takes some time, maybe five minutes, 
from one station place to another. But let's say Mercedes-Benz, all those fast cars, they, they say that within one second you can go to 100, I mean 800 miles per hour. Let us make maybe that example. From zero to go to 80 kilometers per hour, which those sports cars, let's say for instance, um, this Mercedes-Benz or those cars or BMW, the way they are made, they, they are meant to within one second you reach 80 kilometers per hour. But you, a normal car, it's just it will take time to heat up and goes like this. That's what I was referring to. Not in the order of that, uh, in the order right. of how they come. Yeah, that well, this fast come, and then that's not, it's it, just... Um, it also strikes me as you were saying that, that mm, mm. The, the emotion is experienced first. Yes. But as, as we look closely, mm. the, the feeling is actually at the, you know, if you investigate, you realize the feeling is what Mm. You know what then caused that experience? Yes, yes. So, okay, mm. thank you for. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, um, just to get more clarification of um, what John asked, so do you call the initial stimulus not feeling then? So, I, I understand what you're talking about that the feeling takes longer, but the initial event or um, whatever caused the um, stimulus. So it could be like hot stove. Um, that's, you, do you call that initial um, event something else other than feeling? Because I would normally say, oh, that feels hot or mm -hmm. oh, this feels cold. And then, and then the emotions would come, so the, the story I would make up about that stimulus would come after that. I think what happens in English, you use these words, sensations and feelings interchangeably. But for us, uh, what you're telling, feeling called, for that's a sensation. That's a sensation. Feelings is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So the, we, we have a, now a language problem. You're using the word sensation and feelings interchangeably, yes. Uh, so uh, for, for us, when we, we talk about the, even the Pali word for emotions, is chittavagga. So it's part of mind state, which is, uh, this Buddha put things in a neat way, but when it comes to experience, sometimes you don't know what's coming even after. Sometimes even you have emotions, and then sometimes it goes to pleasant. Yeah. It, it goes to pleasant. Sometimes you have emotion and you deal with it and then you are now in a pleasant feeling. So this is, you see, sometimes uh, Buddha gave teaching in terms of instructions, sometimes in terms of practice, sometimes in the order of arising, sometimes in the order of di di uh, passing away. So he taught in many different ways, but when this teaching to us, then we strictly t take them as in order of arising. Because even in the dependent origination, it's not linear. But when we put it in our head, it's linear. It's helping us to see how things actually are interrelated and interdependent based on different conditions. But the way we, they are presented to us, this, uh, depending on this, this arises. And then we think it's linear. It's not linear. There's specific discourses where we know that things actually, because of this, this arises, there's a discourse. 
uh, the Buddha talks about like the, the, the evolving of the, the child in the womb, that's definitely an according to the order of arising. But the foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of breathing, and then you go to standing meditation, well, you have to come here to meditate. So you come while walking. <laughs> so the way things are put together. But anyway, come to your question. So the thing is, uh, with emotions, there are so many different uh, stimulus. Sometimes even the weather. The weather itself, like uh, whether it's when there's snow and uh, there's no sun and it's dark most of the time during the day. And then people what have what you call a disorder, which is called uh, SAD, S-A-D. Yes, that's because based on seasoning, it's a stimuli. Sometimes it's based on uh, touching the stove, and then the fear rises, and then, yeah, so that's best to be something, initial, uh, something initially uh, become a trigger, become a trigger. It could be just touching a stove. It can be just actually feeling and then uh, we have a feeling, and then we have what called underlying tenants, and then we don't like something, and then there's aversion towards it, and then the fear kicks in and other things. So it has different stimuli. Sometimes it's weather, climate. That's why they would, uh, uh, in a discourse, uh, the, in a, some of this literature, we have Buddhist literature, we, we have so many things that can cause things. Sometimes it's weather, climate, sometimes it's, it's actually mind itself, sometimes uh, what you call physical laws, sometimes karma, many, many causes. Yeah, so yes, definitely, that could be feeling the sensation, and then from sensation, it can pass very fast to a difficult emotion, fear, because we don't want to, to get burned. That's, that's what I understand about emotions is that yes. already some story behind it. it definitely. It's not, it, when you have emotion, it's not going to come from vacuum. There's no vacuum. Yeah? It's just always something related, whether it's weather, whether it's a, a, a sensation, whether it's a memory, whether it's a thought, or thoughts are a breeding ground for emotions. <laughs> so you think about something, all of a sudden, you change completely. Even when other people think about you, you know, even I say, mm, I think you are a very kind person. Wow. So also you start thinking you're a kind person, and then you feel very good emotions. Eh? And then I say, wow. Today, I didn't like your shirt. And you go in the mirror and check. And then you prove, oh, no, yeah, maybe not good shirt. And then you, you start hating the person who said, no, it's a good shirt. It's my best shirt or my best dress. And then you start hating people. And then the person who made that comment said, no, I was just joking. <laughs> we have gone through all these difficult emotions. I mean, I've seen it from my experience, and then somebody says something, and they're just joking, you know? And then we go through difficult emotions. Or they, they, we, 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 miss, we, we miss hard. We miss hard them. I remember when I was in Uganda, 
in primary six. In biology, I like I liked to study biology, and then I I learned this word called zygospore. It's called zygospore. It's a, I don't know even what it is now, but anyway, it's called zygospore. And then when I went home and I was repeating this word zygospore, zygospore, <laughs> and then my grandmother uh, asked me to go and get some water. And I, I, I get to get I was going to get this water, and I was saying zygospore, zygospore. And my grandmother said, what? In Luganda, which is my language, it means, do you mean I don't get tired? In the Sikowa, that's what it is. In the Sikowa, in our language, means you think I don't, I don't get tired. So my grandmother said, come, why are you re- replying me like that? <laughs> so my mother took it that, that I'm saying, no, you think I don't get tired? Why are you, you, you asking me to get water? But that's not my intention. I was going even to get the water, but I was going getting water and I'm enjoying this word, zygospore, zygospore. <laughs> I'm telling you, many wars have been even fought. <laughs> Misunderstanding a word, we find so many stories actually that there were war between kingdoms because of words, because of thoughts. Thoughts? Do you know how thought arises? Maybe tomorrow I'm going to talk about them. It's really just very simple. Sense object, visible object, they're coming over to eye consciousness. We call that contact, depending on whether it's designated contact or impediment contact. That means all the five senses, thinking is more of a designated contact. Then from that, we get feelings, and then we keep on going. But I'm telling you, we make these, th- these thoughts personal. And then we make story around it, around them. We make them very big. It's like we make an elephant eh, out of a housefly. I don't know why you, in, in Uganda we say like that. But in here, maybe making a, a hill, anthill, out of a molehill. Yes, that, that's what we do. And if that's what we are doing, we are always going to get high, uh, emotionally hijacked. For me, that's why now when I go in Uganda, every time I'm in Uganda, people, when I'm, I'm dressed like this, they say, wow, we like your fashion. You know my practice? My practice in Uganda? Hearing. Hearing. I turn a little bit and smile a little bit. Thank you. You dress exquisitely. <laughs> so what I do, first, hearing. And then, smile. Thank you. And then I meet some people. You are going to go to hell with your robes. <laughs> of course. And I just say, hearing. Hearing. So whether it's a good fashion, or I'm going to go to hell with my robes, <laughs> it doesn't shake me. It's just the same stuff. So that's why some of these techniques, even all actually, all techniques I'm going to share with you, I've used them. I've used them. And they work. Another question. You can ask about anything. About Uganda. The work I'm doing in Uganda. Uh, why I became a monk. Why am I here. Some of those questions are very simple even to answer. Why not? <laughs> like if you ask me why did I become a monk. The answer is very simple. Why not? And we move on to the next one. <laughs> so don't be afraid. <laughs> you can't just see <laughs> 
Yeah, this is not a very formal stuff, actually. It's very informal. You can ask anything you want. Mm, yes. I think I've seen you before. Am I right? Uh, you may have seen me, but I don't think I've seen you. <laughs> That's a thought. <laughs> Just a thought. <laughs> okay, please ask. Yeah, I'm just curious what the Sangha is like in Uganda, you know, where you are. Come and see. Come and see. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much for asking. Uh, the Sangha is actually thriving. I outsourced a monk <laughs> from Burma because I was traveling a lot, and then I, I got a monk from Burma to stay there for a whole year. So he, had already, he has already finished the whole year staying there, and now he's staying there for the second year. He teaches kids, like 15 kids, about 15 kids, come to our temple. They learn. We put a statue there and, uh, in front of our temple, so they come and meditate. It's always good to see kids meditating like this. <laughs> it's so beautiful, you know. And then after that, they learn Pali language. It's amazing. Actually, kids learn very fast. When I was there, I was not traveling a lot in the beginning. Um, my, my, my sister I came and I chanted like this. Children learn this, and then I, I, I came back to USA. Somebody from uh, a Sri Lankan from the World Bank came to Uganda and visited our temple. When he, and he's from Sri Lanka, and he saw these kids chanting in Pali language. He was so surprised. So kids learn very fast. So uh, now I'm traveling a lot. So I have a monk there to teach the kids meditation and Pali. So every day they come to our temple. And then we ordain already three monks already. Three monks in our temple. One is from Egypt. Another one is from Rwanda. Another one from Uganda. We, we ordain already there. So we, uh, we have now a place in Uganda where we can ordain people. Before, I had to take them to other countries. But now, starting from this year, actually we had the, what we call SEMA. It's a building where we ordain, so we can ordain people. So now we have two monks, monks staying at our temple, and one nun. Guess what? It's my mother yeah. staying there. Now we need to ordain more. You can come, you can come, you can come. <laughs> and then Cecilia, please come. And three weeks, two weeks, you can try. So we, we, so we are doing good, actually. Given that we have a nun and two monks, and it's said that you have to, a place where Dharma is going to flourish is where we have four communities. I mean, four types of this community. One is monks, nuns, lay people. That means, yeah. So um, that's when the Dhamma starts to thrive because you have all the folk assemblies, the four kinds of assemblies. So we have a nun. That's my mother. I ordained her in 2008. And I'm going to Uganda and then stay two hours in the airport, pick her up, join me with my assistant, and we go to, Thai, uh, to Sri Lanka. So I have a long trip. So I'm going with it, at least one nun. And then, yeah, so um, we have this ordination program, and we hope to increase more uh, people as a sangha. Um, 
many people from Liberia, Senegal asked me to ordain, actually. But we didn't have a place to ordain. So now we have a place to ordain, so you are going to see, I think, more people uh, ordaining in Uganda. So thank you very much for asking. So the song is doing well. At one time, we had even four monks, actually, in one place. That means we could even ordain somebody. So I'm so happy about the Sangha. Yeah, and also in terms of the Dhamma, you asked the Sangha about the Dhamma. I can talk about it. It's taking also root because I'm teaching with a combination of African wisdom and mindfulness, right, mindfulness. So I combine the two. Before I was teaching mindfulness, here, sit there, breathe in, and all these things. Later on, I found out it's not going to work. <laughs> through the school of hard knocks, I learned through the school of hard knocks. You know that school? <laughs> I'm telling you. You go around the world and you teach and you go back to Uganda and nobody's interested. <laughs> so what's going on here? Maybe I should change my methodology. You know, so I had to change the way I deliver. So the Dhamma, so I'm very happy about it. Yeah, so you ask the song, but I talked about the Dhamma. Yeah, this is very good. Yeah, thank you. Okay, welcome. So could you tell us how you changed, actually? How Your I, teaching? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so you see how I changed is uh, uh, what happened is uh, at the, at, uh, when I was in Sri Lanka, I took a course uh, called Education Psychology when I was doing my, my bachelor's degree in Buddhism. Uh, I stumbled over a course which is called Education Psychology, how the, actually the Buddha taught in India, which is, was Brahmins, Brahmanism, the, the Hindu and all these things. How he was successful? His teaching was against the stream. Whatever people were thinking that time, he brought teaching that totally goes in the opposite direction. I wanted to know why, he, why am I failing and how to deal with it. And then I, in one of the courses was about Buddhism and education. And then we had to do a paper on education psychology. I went to university and started searching what's the best way to deliver something. And I had to learn some of those techniques. And then I said, whoa. That's what Buddha was teaching. <laughs> he was using karma. He was using nibbana. He was using even the word mindfulness. You think mindfulness? Is John Kabat-Zinn is the founder of that word mindfulness. Well, that word is in India. It's in Sanskrit, which is sumruti. The word is sumruti. Sumruti means to remember. Even there's a park in India. It's called sumruti park. It means to remember, recollection. Now what the Buddha did, he was using this word. What he did, he turned it around from his enlightenment mind to find out what is, to give the, the word a high philosophical, philosophical and psychological meaning. And then he talks about paying attention in the present moment. And when John Kabat-Zinn came, he said, wow, these Americans... They understand science. They understand psychology. So he gave a long definition. So now my challenge, what can I do in Africa? Is there anything that is so ingrained in their wisdom? I went through their culture, our culture, dancing, drumming, uh, all these things. And then I found out a place where I can 
find wisdom. And that was African proverbs across the whole continent. Whether it's South Africa, whether it's Mali, whatever, I had to draw from that. So I studied their proverbs. Our proverbs. Then, then, then when I found Ubuntu, you know, concept Ubuntu, it's not actually what you call software program. No, no. <laughs> Ubuntu is a concept that you find out in Uganda. We call it Ubuntu. Actually, people call it Ubuntu. Ubuntu is, Ubuntu is Ubuntu, we call it also in Uganda. We have that concept. So I start trying to find out what they use in their life to guide them. And before all these things came, 500 years ago, what, how did they guide themselves? Eating food and marrying and all these things. How they dealt with death and grief and trauma. In fact, when I was in Australia, um, I talked to an Aborigin, hmm? and I found out they had similar culture with African. So wherever I went, I tried to find out people who came from Africa, whether they're still carrying certain things. So I went in a library in Australia, researching more, and found out, oh, even this place, the Aborigines had the word for meditation, which is called Dadiri. So I read about it. So I said, no, in Africa we must have the word meditation. It can't be in India also. It can't be only American people meditating. And uh, I talked to one of the, uh, what you call, elder, one elder in, 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 uh, in Australia. I asked, how do you deal with trauma? How do you deal with grief? Ah, oh, grandmother died recently. My son died differently. I mean, recently. Please tell me how you deal with this kind of stuff. Oh, you know. Then I had to be very specific. Okay. Didn't you grieve because your son died? She told me, no. I said, you didn't grieve? Your grandmother dying and your son dying in such a short time? I said, no, I didn't grieve. I said, well, how? Tell me how you do it. He said, well, in Aborigin tradition, we have a belief that when this, uh, a person dies, they join their grandmother grandfather. <laughs> so this belief that actually somebody doesn't rest in pieces <laughs> or in peace. So this is the dead are alive. The dead are alive. We have it in Buddhism. In Buddhism, that's what it is. They are not there in the, <laughs> in the grave. They are alive. So that's African belief. The dead are alive. So if I, I see somebody passing away, and just died, I said, wow, he's enjoying now. He's, now he's a baby, he's a toddler, you know, it's just, yeah, maybe he's part of us here, maybe. After maybe, let's say, my father passed away a long time, maybe he's there listening to me, giving a talk. So in African tradition, we know that actually when people die, they're actually, they're still alive. Not in this body, but in another body, another kind of embodiment. So anyway, I learned through those things, going through different cultures that left Africa, like Aborigines left Africa. They're the first people to leave Africa. So I, I got information from there, and then I started doing workshops in Uganda, and then gave them a template. I would list everything, let's say compassion, generosity, loving kindness, mindfulness, concentration. Please help me out. You are going to attend my research? They say, yes, please do the, the, the work. 
So they would send me back the, what they have done because they are from different tribes. Some are from north, northern Uganda, and I don't speak the language from the north. So I got information from them, and then I start reading a book about Proverbs and hidden wisdom, and then I start tallying up, started tally, to tally, eh? this is a tally, this is like generosity. What's generosity in African wisdom? What's karma in African wisdom? So I tried to find out things were very exciting. Like generosity, there's Japadora. Japadora is a tribe in Uganda. They are saying that there's nobody who's too poor not to give, and there's nobody who's too rich not to, uh, not to receive. There's nobody who's too rich not to receive, and there's nobody who's too poor not to give. Then in my research, I said, okay, can you give something? Oh, I'm very poor. With, I don't have money. I said, no, you can give time. Even the poorest person can give time, can give presence. Do you know presence is a gift? For me, I didn't know that presence is a gift until I was in Thailand working as a scuba diver and I was being paid to be present. I used to earn <laughs> to just be present. I didn't even work. I, the owner of the shop telling me, ask me, please, can you spend two hours just sit in a chair? In my, my shop, diving shop, guess what? I was the only African on the whole island. As soon as I sat in a shop, all people came from different countries <laughs> to see this African diver. <laughs> he was a good marketing. <laughs> <laughs> so girls would be around. I wasn't a monk, by the way. Just in case. <laughs> You Scandinavians, Ireland, people just come. Five of them, like, behave. You have bees here? You, you, you know, behave? Very soon I'll be like a beehive, you know, <laughs> with all people around coming. I say, hey, how, how's diving? And just because it's just presence. And then they paid. So, <laughs> but I lost my job. <laughs> I lost my job because the manager was from England and the owner of the shop was from Thailand and the manager from England never asked permission from he, the owner of the shop. So the, there's a lady from Norway asked me, what are you doing here? You don't work here. I said, well, I'm always there between seven to, to nine. <laughs> I'm paid to be there. <laughs> and then this word went to the manager and he didn't like, he didn't know marketing gimmicks. And then I like, he said, no, 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 don't waste money like this. <laughs> and then the customer went down. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, so I learned these things, how to bring in our African wisdom through elements of teaching that we are doing in meditation. Concentration. What's concentration in African tradition? We have a proverb for it. What effort we have it? Ooh, effort, we have it there in two proverbs. One is God help those who help themselves. That's already effort, individual effort. And also we have another one about Lubalembeda. I don't know if you remember. It's like about mystical powers can only help you when you help yourself. So now, now I would now concretize on individual effort because in meditation you need individual effort. It's not sitting there and then all samadhi coming from up. All the concentration is going to come from up. No, no, no. I'm not telling them, okay, sit there and then loving kindness is going to come. You have to do the work. 
But that goes against what's going on now. Because people always think that money is going to come from somewhere, rain is going to come from somebody, and all these things. So now it's changing. It's turning, it's turning their orientation now. You understand? Yes. yes. Compassion. Teachings on compassion. Self-compassion. All those things now I'm focusing on those elements. Using what's already there and explain it more because I can expand on low karma on, 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 on love karma more than what they have. But they'll have a foundation. It's not like, okay, we sit here, bring us something new, you went to India for five years, and now, uh, please, bring, t tell us something new. No. When I start my discourses in Uganda, I don't start with, uh, with the things new. I start from our proverb. I say, and then all people understand in Luganda, which is my language, and then I explain them in Luganda, they all understand this, this love cause and effect. And all of them are laughing, and, and they want even to know more. They ask me, please, we want to know more. Please, more, more. I say, no. Uh, let's go now explain a little bit deeper. Even now when I, I teach in a university, it's called Kisubi University. It's a Catholic university. They have nuns who are lecturers and uh, fathers who are lecturers, priests, uh, Catholic priests. When I start teaching Dharma there, I start teaching what's already on the ground in Africa, not something that came from outside Africa. I came homegrown wisdom. <laughs> I start with homegrown wisdom. And now I start expanding it more and more. And I say, oh, you gave me 10 minutes to talk. It's over. They say, please, keep on talking. Keep on talking. I can see a lot of, eh, they need more. They're thirsty for more. So that's what I did. Does that help? Yeah, I understand that. Last question. Yes. Anybody? Yeah, we're, we're asking a question. Anybody? and their relationships to the lost, lost loved ones, um, that they're, they're in a different place, just not here. Sorry? That, that lost of, don't love, hold love, it. Don't lost hold of it. loved ones, mm -hmm. that they don't grieve, mm. um, that they're just someplace else, they're mm. not, not here. But is there um, an African proverb that deals with the fact that your own lost, do they grieve about that rather than... Yes, the loss. By the way, having said that, this was uh, to find out the connection because I found so many connections between Aboriginals in Australia and the Africans in Africa. So, uh, yes, there is a lot of grieving. Actually, in Uganda, there's a lot of grieving uh, going on. But the good thing about uh, it is... The, probably I need also to, to reinforce this, that grieving is a process. Most of us, when grieving arises, first is a denial. First we deny. There's a denial. If, if they say, oh, somebody died, no, it can't happen. That's the first thing. That's the denial. And then we get angry. And we, so we don't allow ourselves the process, uh, for the process to unfold. But what I found out in Africa, uh, people actually weep a lot when there's a death and they're really just going on and going on. 
And then uh, there's a proverb, many proverbs talking about, uh, uh, about that process and uh, really w w to draw some uh, wisdom on uh, that, uh, okay, even that is going to go. So there's a, a proverb ab about things changing that also even this, this, uh, this grieving will go, will change. So whether it's loss, uh, your goods, and all these things. So yes, there's a proverb that speaks to that. Seeing it as something that, yeah, like uh, I cannot, you don't understand Uganda, but I can tell you. You say like, which means that w this kind of weather, literal translation, that actually shines and gets dark. In other words, this weather that keeps on like uh, getting into daytime and goes into night, you should not look as if you are, that's the end of it. So that speaks to change that even if when you have grief, that's going to change too. So that that allows to accept impermanence nature of even the mind state of grief. Yeah, there are many proverbs of that nature. So there's a lot of proverbs to draw on, actually, when there's difficult emotions, how to deal with, dif how to deal with difficult emotions, and many other things. I mean, this is something that I, ne I thought I'll never do, but it's just part of my life, basically, to really reclaim our wisdom from all different places in Africa and really find out a proverb in Ethiopia, a proverb in South Africa, a proverb in Uganda, like this. I'm doing this kind of thing collect them together and tabulate them actually against what I feel is very transformative, like maybe right understanding. In fact, when it comes to trauma and emotions, actually the worldview, your worldview, the way you see things actually determines how much you're going through, how you're, how you're going to go through emotions, including trauma. Your worldview, world the way you see things whether you see you, you, your worldview is that we have a single life, whether we have many lives. Like I give you an example for me, when it comes to death, my worldview is very different. That's why uh, I say, well, I'm going to upgrade my existence. Upgrade. <laughs> That's how my worldview, and nobody's going to change that. <laughs> so when, when, like in, in, in the airplane, you see, when we are coming from, uh, from uh, this place, Boston to Newark, and many times I fly to Asia, there's air pockets around Red Sea, air pockets. When I see people crossing themselves like this, uh, ah, no. <laughs> For me, I say, wow, I'm going to upgrade existence, whatever happened. <laughs> So this is a world view. So when people are so afraid, what? I, so, I mean, sometimes we hit turbulence and I see how many people are afraid. Those lovers, they, catch, they hold on to each other like this tightly. I can see people holding on them to their girlfriend or boyfriend so tightly when there's this kind of turbulence. I'm sitting there. <laughs> sometimes I practice meta and then I say, wow, whatever happens, I'm going to upgrade the existence. So I've, I've done what has to be done, you know. <laughs> I've done a little bit introducing mindfulness to people and uh, all these things. So what I've done, my actions are going to hold me because that's all. Wherever you go the next life, 
so uh, what you've done is what you meet. You know, if you've done good things, just think, you know, reflect on good things. Other than worrying, okay, this is going to be the end, kaput. No, I don't have kaput in my mind. <laughs> Done. <laughs> so that's a worldview. And not many people have that worldview that after death, they are going to upgrade existence. They are going to think downgrade existence. No. So for me, that keeps him going whenever there's something and happening, and I'm, I'm not so worried about things. We have two, one minute to go. We have to end at nine. Uh-huh. One minute. Well, I'm close yeah, it's going to close. I think it is. No, I'll answer tomorrow then. Okay. Mm. So my question was, you're finding a way to um, make Buddhist thought or whatever... I call it Dharma, the truth, because right. the Dharma, the Dharma, yeah, the Dharma is actually what's the truth, the universal law, the way how things are, and Buddhism is actually uh, it's a translation of that word, which you can't we can't even find it in a scripture, the word Buddhism, ism and Buddha go together, you think? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. there's a lot of culture and all the things, but I, I talk about Dharma. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I teach. Um, mm. So. Place where there aren't a lot of Buddhists. Yes, right? yes, yes. We so, don't have. The, so, hmm. how did you get attracted? Oh, it was person me, not how I teach. No, no. Hmm. Now I'm moving to a different. A different question. question. I'm asking. Yeah. A, a second question. Okay, yeah. second question. How I came to Buddhism? I've written a book. <laughs> <laughs> I will send you the link to the book. Actually, I think she's very interested in all the things because I, I gave the first talk and, and you listened to it and then you became very interested in the Dhamma. That's why you're interested. Okay, now, I, I was in Uganda as a student. This is easy to answer. I, got, uh, I, I went to university. I got a, a scholarship to study in India. Hmm? And India government was paying for my study because they gave scholarship to Minister of foreign affairs in Uganda. So I went as part of that exchange and I went to the university in India and I met monks and monks, they introduced me to Buddhism and then from there I started. So it was going out of Uganda and went to India and I spent five years in India. That's when I met the Dalai Lama and he inspired me a lot and I went to Tibet. So that's a short answer for your question. But there's a book about it. And Bante Gunarata, my teacher, uh, asked me, please write a book. I told him, people ask me this question all the time. <laughs> how you became a Buddhist, how you became a monk. He told me, why don't you write a, a book? So now I've wrote a book. <coughs> Planting Dhamma Seeds in Africa. Oh, okay. Yes, it's in five languages. And it nearly made a person from Senegal, who was a Muslim, read it, became a Buddhist, Translated into French, he said, I have to become a monk. So be careful when you're reading. <laughs> you might become a nun. <laughs> no, you're fine. <laughs> this is a real story, actually. He saved money and went to Thailand to become a monk. He said, I've got to do this and join you. He saw my experience, my, the whole journey I took. It wasn't a simple journey. I was born as a Roman Catholic. So anyway, I've ended my session. So this is it.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.